0: The Rowan Tree Collection. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells Chapter One The Time Traveler, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His gray eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. The fire burned brightly, and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights in the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Our chairs, being his patents, embraced and caressed us, rather than submitted to be sat upon, and there was that luxurious after-dinner atmosphere when thought roams gracefully free of the trammels of precision. And he put it to us in this way, marking the points with a lean forefinger, as we sat and lazily admired his earnestness over this new paradox, as we thought it, and his fecundity. "'You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted. The geometry, for instance, they taught you at school, is founded on a misconception.' "'Is not that rather a large thing to expect us to begin upon?' said Philby, an argumentative person with red hair. "'I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it.' You will soon admit as much as I need from you. You know, of course, that a mathematical line, a line of thickness nil, has no real existence. They taught you that? Neither has a mathematical plane. These things are mere abstractions. That is all right, said the psychologist. Nor, having only length, breadth, and thickness, can a cube have a real existence. There, I object, said Philby. Of course a solid body may exist. All real things... So, most people think. But wait a moment. Can an instantaneous cube exist? Don't follow you, said Philby. Can a cube that does not last for any time at all have a real existence? Philby became pensive. Clearly, the time traveler proceeded, any real body must have extension in four directions it must have length, breadth, thickness, and duration. But through a natural infirmity of the flesh, which I will explain to you in a moment, we incline to overlook this fact. There are really four dimensions, three of which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. There is, however, a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter, because it happens that our consciousness moves intermittently in one direction along the latter from the beginning to the end of our lives. That said a very young man, making spasmodic efforts to relight his cigar over the lamp. That, very clear indeed. "'Now, it is very remarkable that this is so extensively overlooked,' continued the time-traveller, with a slight accession of cheerfulness. "'Really, this is what is meant by the fourth dimension, though some people who talk about the fourth dimension do not know they mean it. It is only another way of looking at time.' There is no difference between time and any of the three dimensions of space except that our consciousness moves along it. But some foolish people have got hold of the wrong side of that idea. You have all heard what they have to say about this fourth dimension? I have not, said the provincial mayor. It is simply this, that space, as our mathematicians have it, is spoken of as having three dimensions, which one may call length, breadth, and thickness and is always definable by reference to three planes, each at right angles to the others. But some philosophical people have been asking why three dimensions, particularly? Why not another direction at right angles to the other three? And have even tried to construct a four-dimension geometry. Professor Simon Newcomb was expounding this to the New York Mathematical Society only a month or so ago. You know how on a flat surface, which has only two dimensions, we can represent a figure of a three-dimensional solid... "'and similarly they think that by models of three dimensions "'they could represent one of four, "'if they could master the perspective of the thing. "'See?' "'I think so,' murmured the provincial mayor, "'and knitting his brows he lapsed into an introspective state, "'his lips moving as one who repeats mystic words. "'Yes, I think I see it now,' he said after some time, "'brightening in a quite transitory manner. "'Well, I do not mind telling you I have been at work "'upon this geometry of four dimensions for some time.' Some of my results are curious. For instance, here is a portrait of a man at 8 years old, another at 15, another at 17, another at 23, and so on. All these are evidently sections, as it were, three-dimensional representations of his four-dimensioned being, which is a fixed and unalterable thing. Scientific people, proceeded the time-traveler, after the pause required for the proper assimilation of this, know very well that time is only a kind of space, Here is a popular scientific diagram, a weather record. This line I trace with my finger shows the movement of the barometer. Yesterday it was so high, yesterday night it fell, then this morning it rose again, and so gently upward to here. Surely the Mercury did not trace this line in any of the dimensions of space generally recognized, but certainly it traced such a line, and that line, therefore, we must conclude was along the time dimension. But, said the medical man, staring hard at a coal in the fire, if time is really only a fourth dimension of space, why is it, and why has it always been, regarded as something different? And why cannot we move in time as we move about in the other dimensions of space? The time traveller smiled. Are you sure we can move freely in space? Right and left we can go, backward and forward freely enough, and men always have done so. I admit we move freely in two dimensions, but how about up and down? "'Gravitation limits us there.' "'Not exactly,' said the medical man. they are balloons.' "'But before the balloons, "'save for spasmodic jumping "'and the inequalities of the surface, "'man had no freedom of vertical movement.' "'Still they could move a little up and down,' "'said the medical man. "'Easier, far easier down than up. "'And you cannot move at all in time. "'You cannot get away from the present moment. "'My dear sir,' That is just where you are wrong. That is just where the whole world has gone wrong. We are always getting away from the present moment. Our mental existences, which are immaterial and have no dimensions, are passing along the time dimension with a uniform velocity from the cradle to the grave, just as we should travel down if we began our existence fifty miles above the Earth's surface. But the great difficulty is this, interrupted the psychologist. You can move about in all directions of space, but you cannot move about in time. That is the germ of my great discovery. But you are wrong to say we cannot move about in time. For instance, if I am recalling an incident very vividly, I go back to the instant of its occurrence. I become absent-minded, as you say. I jump back for a moment. Of course... We have no means of staying back for any length of time, any more than a savage or an animal has of staying six feet above the ground. But a civilized man is better off than the savage in this respect. He can go up against gravitation in a balloon. And why should he not hope that ultimately he may be able to stop or accelerate his drift along the time dimension, or even turn about and travel the other way? Oh, this began Philby. Is all... Why not? said the time traveler. It's against reason, said Philby. What reason? said the time traveler. You can show black is white by argument, said Philby, but you will never convince me. Possibly not, said the time traveler. But now you begin to see the object of my investigations into the geometry of four dimensions. "'Long ago I had a vague inkling of a machine to travel through time!' exclaimed the very young man. "'That shall travel indifferently in any direction of space and time, as the driver determines.' Philby contented himself with laughter. "'But I have experimental verification,' said the time traveller. "'It would be remarkably convenient for the historian,' the psychologist suggested.' one might travel back and verify the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings, for instance. "'Don't you think you would attract attention?' said the medical man. "'Our ancestors had no great tolerance for anachronisms.' "'One might get one's Greek from the very lips of Homer and Plato,' the very young man thought. "'In which case they would certainly plow you for the little go. "'The German scholars have improved Greek so much.' "'Then there is the future,' said the very young man. "'Just think!' One might invest all one's money, leave it to accumulate at interest, and hurry on ahead. To discover a society, said I, erected on a strictly communistic basis. Of all the wild, extravagant theories, began the psychologist. Yes, so it seemed to me, and so I never talked of it until... Experimental verification, cried I. You are going to verify that? The experiment, cried Philby, who was getting brain-weary. Let's see your experiment anyhow, said the psychologist, though it's all humbug, you know. The time traveler smiled round at us. Then, still smiling faintly and with his hands deep in his trousers' pockets, he walked slowly out of the room, and we heard his slippers shuffling down the long passage to his laboratory. The psychologist looked at us. I wonder what he's got. Some sleight-of-hand trick or other, said the medical man, and Philby tried to tell us about a conjurer he had seen at Bursal but before he had finished his preface, the Time Traveler came back and Philby's anecdote collapsed. The thing the Time Traveler held in his hand was a glittering metallic framework, scarcely larger than a small clock, and very delicately made. There was ivory in it, and some transparent crystalline substance. And now I must be explicit, for this that follows, unless his explanation is to be accepted, is an absolutely unaccountable thing. He took one of the small octagonal tables that were scattered about the room and set it in front of the fire, with two legs on the hearthrug. On this table he placed the mechanism. Then he drew up a chair and sat down. The only other object on the table was a small shaded lamp, the bright light of which fell upon the model. There were also perhaps a dozen candles about, two in brass candlesticks upon the mantel and several in sconces, so that the room was brilliantly illuminated. I sat in a low armchair nearest the fire, and I drew this forward so as to be almost between the time traveler and the fireplace. Philby sat behind him, looking over his shoulder. The medical man and the provincial mayor watched him in profile from the right, the psychologist from the left. The very young man stood behind the psychologist. We were all on the alert. It appears incredible to me that any kind of trick, however subtly conceived and however adroitly done, could have been played upon us under these conditions. The time traveler looked at us and then at the mechanism. "'Well,' said the psychologist. "'This little affair,' said the time traveler, "'resting his elbows upon the table "'and pressing his hands together above the apparatus, "'is only a model. "'It is my plan for a machine to travel through time. "'You will notice that it looks singularly askew, "'and that there is an odd twinkling appearance about this bar, "'as though it was in some way unreal.' "'He pointed to the part with his finger.' "'Also, here is one little white lever, and here is another.' "'The medical man got up out of his chair and peered into the thing. "'It's beautifully made,' he said. "'It took two years to make,' retorted the time-traveller. "'Then, when we had all imitated the action of the medical man, he said, "'Now I want you clearly to understand that this lever, being pressed over, "'sends the machine gliding into the future, and this other reverses the motion.' This saddle represents the seat of a time traveler. Presently, I am going to press the lever, and off the machine will go. It will vanish, pass into future time, and disappear. Have a good look at the thing. Look at the table, too, and satisfy yourselves there is no trickery. I don't want to waste this model and then be told I'm a quack. There was a minute's pause, perhaps. The psychologist seemed about to speak to me, but changed his mind. Then the time traveler put forth his finger towards the lever. No, he said suddenly, lend me your hand. And turning to the psychologist, he took that individual's hand in his own and told him to put out his forefinger, so that it was the psychologist himself who sent forth the model time machine on its interminable voyage. We all saw the lever turn. I am absolutely certain there was no trickery. There was a breath of wind, and the lamp flame jumped. One of the candles on the mantel was blown out, and the little machine suddenly swung round, became indistinct, was seen as a ghost, for a second perhaps, as an eddy of faintly glittering brass and ivory, and it was gone. Vanished. Save for the lamp, the table was bare. Everyone was silent for a minute. Then Philby said he was damned. The psychologist recovered from his stupor, and suddenly looked under the table. At that, the time traveler laughed cheerfully. "'Well,' he said, with a reminiscence of the psychologist. Then, getting up, he went to the tobacco jar on the mantel and with his back to us began to fill his pipe. We stared at each other. "'Look here,' said the medical man. "'Are you in earnest about this? Do you seriously believe that that machine has traveled into time?' "'Certainly.' said the time traveler, stooping to light a spill at the fire. Then he turned, lighting his pipe, to look at the psychologist's face. The psychologist, to show that he was not unhinged, helped himself to a cigar and tried to light it, uncut. What is more? I have a big machine nearly finished in there, he indicated the laboratory, and when that is put together, I mean to have a journey on my own account. You mean to say that that machine has traveled into the future? said Philby. Into the future or the past? I don't for certain know which. After an interval, the psychologist had an inspiration. It must have gone into the past if it has gone anywhere, he said. Why? said the time traveller. Because I presume that it has not moved in space, and if it travelled into the future, it would still be here all this time, since it must have travelled through this time. But, I said, if it travelled into the past, it would have been visible when we came first into this room and last Thursday when we were here, and the Thursday before that, and so forth. Serious objections, remarked the provincial mayor with an air of impartiality, turning towards the time-traveler. Not a bit, said the time-traveler, and to the psychologist. You think. You can explain that. It's presentation below the threshold, you know. Diluted presentation. Of course, said the psychologist, and reassured us. That's a simple point of psychology. I should have thought of it. It's plain enough and helps the paradox delightfully. We cannot see it, nor can we appreciate this machine any more than we can the spoke of a wheel spinning, or a bullet flying through the air. If it is travelling through time fifty times or a hundred times faster than we are, if it gets through a minute while we get through a second, the impression it creates will of course be only one-fiftieth or one-hundredth of what it would make if it were not travelling in time. That's plain enough. He passed his hand through the space in which the machine had been. You see? "'he said, laughing. "'We sat and stared at the vacant table for a minute or so. "'Then the time-traveler asked us what we thought of it all. "'It sounds plausible enough tonight,' said the medical man. "'But wait until tomorrow. "'Wait for the common sense of the morning. "'Would you like to see the time-machine itself?' "'asked the time-traveler. "'And therewith, taking the lamp in his hand, "'he led the way down the long, drafty corridor to his laboratory. "'I remember vividly the flickering light.' His queer broad head and silhouette, the dance of the shadows, how we all followed him, puzzled but incredulous, and how there in the laboratory we beheld a larger edition of the little mechanism which we had seen vanish from before our eyes. Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory, parts had certainly been filed or sawn out of rock crystal. The thing was generally complete, but the twisted crystal and bars lay unfinished upon the bench beside some sheets of drawings, and I took one up for a better look at it. Quartz, it seemed to be. Look here, said the medical man. Are you perfectly serious? Or is this a trick, like that ghost you showed us last Christmas? Upon that machine, said the time traveler, holding the lamp aloft, I intend to explore time. Is that plain? I was never more serious in my life. None of us quite knew how to take it. I caught Philby's eye over the shoulder of the medical man, and he winked at me solemnly. Chapter 2 I think that at that time none of us quite believed in the time machine. The fact is, the time traveler was one of those men who are too clever to be believed. You never felt that you saw all round him. You always suspected some subtle reserve, some ingenuity and ambush behind his lucid frankness. Had Philby shown the model and explained the matter in the time traveler's words, we should have shown him far less skepticism, for we should have perceived his motives. A pork butcher could understand Philby. But the time traveler had more than a touch of whim among his elements, and we distrusted him. Things that would have made the frame of a less clever man seemed tricks in his hands. It is a mistake to do things too easily. The serious people who took him seriously never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputations for judgement with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. So I don't think any of us said very much about time travelling in the interval between that Thursday and the next. Though its odd potentialities ran, no doubt, in most of our minds, its plausibility, that is, its practical incredibleness, the curious possibilities of anachronism, and of utter confusion, it suggested. For my own part, I was particularly preoccupied with the trick of the model. That I remember discussing with the medical man, whom I met on Friday at the Linnean. He said he had seen a similar thing at Tumingen, and laid considerable stress on the blowing out of the candle, but how the trick was done he could not explain. The next Thursday I went again to Richmond. I suppose I was one of the time traveller's most constant guests, and arriving late found four or five men already assembled in his drawing room. The medical man was standing before the fire with a sheet of paper in one hand and his watch in the other. "'I looked round for the time-traveller, and—' "'It's half past seven now,' said the medical man. "'I suppose we'd better have dinner.' "'Where's—' said I, naming our host. "'You've just come? "'It's rather odd. "'He's unavoidably detained. "'He asks me in this note to lead off with dinner at seven if he's not back. "'Says he'll explain when he comes. "'Seems a pity to let the dinner spoil,' said the editor of a well-known daily paper, "'and thereupon the doctor rang the bell.' The psychologist was the only person besides the doctor and myself who had attended the previous dinner. The other men were blank, the editor aforementioned, a certain journalist, and another, a quiet, shy man with a beard whom I didn't know, and who, as far as my observation went, never opened his mouth all the evening. There was some speculation at the dinner table about the time traveler's absence, and I suggested time traveling in a half-jocular spirit. The editor wanted that explained to him, and the psychologist volunteered a wooden account of the ingenious paradox and trick we had witnessed that day week. He was in the midst of his exposition when the door from the corridor opened slowly and without noise. I was facing the door and saw it first. Hello, I said, at last! And the door opened wider, and the time traveler stood before us. I gave a cry of surprise. Good heavens, man, what's the matter? cried the medical man, who saw him next. And the whole tableful turned towards the door. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dusty and dirty and smeared with green down the sleeves, his hair disordered and, as it seemed to me, greyer, either with dust and dirt or because its colour had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale, his chin had a brown cut on it, a cut half healed. His expression was haggard and drawn, as if by intense suffering. For a moment he hesitated in the doorway as if he had been dazzled by the light. Then he came into the room. He walked with just such a limp as I have seen in foot-sore tramps. We stared at him in silence, expecting him to speak. He said not a word, but came painfully to the table and made a motion towards the wine. The editor filled a glass of champagne and pushed it towards him. He drained it, and it seemed to do him good, for he looked round the table, and the ghost of his old smile flickered across his face. What on earth? "'Earth have you been up to, man?' said the doctor. The time traveller did not seem to hear. "'Don't let me disturb you,' he said with a certain faltering articulation. "'I'm all right.' He stopped, held out his glass for more, and took it off at a draft. "'That's good,' he said. His eyes grew brighter and a faint colour came into his cheeks. His glance flickered over our faces with a certain dull approval, and then went round the warm and comfortable room. Then he spoke again, still as if it were feeling his way among his words. I'm going to wash and dress, and then I'll come down and explain things. Save me some of that mutton. I'm starving for a bit of meat. He looked across at the editor, who was a rare visitor, and hoped he was all right. The editor began a question. Tell you presently, said the time traveller. I'm... Funny. Be all right in a minute. He put down his glass and walked toward the staircase door. Again I remarked his lameness in the soft, patting sound of his footfall, and standing up in my place I saw his feet as he went out. He had nothing on them but a pair of tattered, blood-stained socks. Then the door closed upon him. I had half a mind to follow, till I remembered how he had detested any fuss about himself. For a minute, perhaps, my mind was wool-gathering. Then... "'Remarkable behavior of an eminent scientist,' I heard the editor say, thinking after his wont in headlines, and this brought my attention back to the bright dinner table. "'What's the game?' said the journalist. "'Has he been doing the amateur catcher? I don't follow.' I met the eye of the psychologist and read my own interpretation in his face. I thought of the time-traveler limping painfully upstairs. I don't think anyone else had noticed his lameness.' The first to recover completely from this surprise was the medical man, who rang the bell. The time traveler hated to have servants waiting at dinner for a hot plate. At that, the editor turned to his knife and fork with a grunt, and the silent man followed suit. The dinner was resumed. Conversation was exclamatory for a little while, with gasps of wonderment, and then the editor got fervent in his curiosity. Does our friend eke out his modest income with a crossing, or has he his Nebuchadnezzar phases? He inquired. I feel assured it's this business of the time machine, I said, and took up the psychologist's account of our previous meeting. The new guests were frankly incredulous. The editor raised objections. What was this time-traveling? A man couldn't cover himself with dust by rolling in a paradox, could he? And then, as the idea came to him, he resorted to caricature. Hadn't they any clothes brushes in the future? The journalist, too, would not believe at any price, and joined the editor in the easy work of heaping ridicule on the whole thing. They were both the new kind of journalist, very joyous, irreverent young men. "'Our special correspondent in the day after tomorrow reports,' the journalist was saying, or rather shouting, when the time traveller came back. He was dressed in ordinary evening clothes. Nothing save his haggard look remained of the change that had startled me. "'I say,' said the editor hilariously, These chaps here say you have been traveling into the middle of next week. Tell us all about Little Roseberry, will you? What will you take for the lot? The time traveler came to the place reserved for him without a word. He smiled quietly in his old way. Where's my mutton? He said. What a treat it is to stick a fork into meat again. Story! Cried the editor. Story be damned! Said the time traveler. I want something to eat. "'I won't say a word until I get some peptone into my arteries. Thanks. And the salt.' "'One word,' said I. "'Have you been time-traveling?' "'Yes,' said the time-traveler with his mouth full, nodding his head. "'I'd give a shilling a line for a verbatim note,' said the editor. The time traveller pushed his glass towards the silent man and rang it with his fingernail, at which the silent man, who had been staring at his face, started convulsively and poured him wine. The rest of the dinner was uncomfortable. For my own part, sudden questions kept on rising to my lips, and I dare say it was the same with the others. The journalist tried to relieve the tension by telling anecdotes of Hetty Potter. The time traveller devoted his attention to his dinner and displayed the appetite of a tramp. The medical man smoked a cigarette, and watched the time traveler through his eyelashes. The silent man seemed even more clumsy than usual and drank champagne with regularity and determination out of sheer nervousness. At last, the time traveler pushed his plate away and looked round us. I suppose I must apologize, he said. I was simply starving. I've had a most amazing time. He reached out his hand for a cigar and cut the end. But... "'Come into the smoking room. "'It's too long a story to tell over greasy plates.' "'And ringing the bell in passing, "'he led the way into the adjoining room. "'You have told blank and dash and chose about the machine,' "'he said to me, leaning back in his easy chair "'and naming the three new guests. "'But the thing's a mere paradox,' said the editor. "'I can't argue tonight. "'I don't mind telling you the story, but I can't argue. "'I will,' he went on. Tell you the story of what has happened to me, if you like. But you must refrain from interruptions. I want to tell it. Badly. Most of it will sound like lying. So be it. It's true. Every word of it. All the same. I was in my laboratory at four o'clock, and since then? I have lived eight days. Such days as no human being ever lived before. I'm nearly worn out, but I shan't sleep till I've told this thing over to you. Then I shall go to bed. But no interruptions. Is it agreed? Agreed, said the editor, and the rest of us echoed. Agreed. And with that, the time traveler began his story as I have set it forth. He sat back in his chair at first and spoke like a weary man. Afterwards, he got more animated. In writing it down, I feel with only too much keenness the inadequacy of pen and ink, and, above all, my own inadequacy to express its quality. You read, I will suppose, attentively enough, but you cannot see the speaker's white, sincere face in the bright circle of the little lamp, nor hear the intonation of his voice. You cannot know how his expression followed the turns of his story. Most of us hearers were in shadow, for the candles in the smoking room had not been lighted, and only the face of the journalist and the legs of the silent man from the knees downward were illuminated. At first we glanced now and again at each other, After a time, we ceased to do that, and looked only at the time-traveller's face. Chapter 3 I told some of you last Thursday of the principles of the time machine, and showed you the actual thing itself, incomplete, in the workshop. There it is now, a little travel worn truly, and one of the ivory bars is cracked and a brass rail bent, but the rest of it's sound enough. I expected to finish it on Friday, but on Friday, when the putting together was nearly done, I found that one of the nickel bars was exactly one inch too short. And this I had to get remade, so that the thing was not complete until this morning. It was at ten o'clock today that the first of all time machines began its career. I gave it a last tap, tried all the screws again, put one more drop of oil on the quartz rod, and sat myself in the saddle. I suppose a suicide who holds a pistol to his skull feels much the same wonder at what will come next, as I felt then. I took the starting lever in one hand and the stopping one in the other, pressed the first, and almost immediately the second. I seemed to reel. I felt a nightmare sensation of falling, and looking round, I saw the laboratory exactly as before. Had anything happened? For a moment, I suspected that my intellect had tricked me. Then I noted the clock. A moment before as it had seemed it had stood at a minute or so past ten now it was nearly half past three i drew a breath set my teeth gripped the starting lever with both hands and went off with a thud the laboratory got hazy and went dark mrs watchett came in and walked apparently without seeing me towards the garden door I suppose it took her a minute or so to traverse the place, but to me she seemed to shoot across the room like a rocket. I pressed the lever over to its extreme position. The night came like the turning out of a lamp, and in another moment came tomorrow. The laboratory grew faint and hazy, then fainter and ever fainter. Tomorrow night came black, then day again, night again, day again, faster and faster still. An eddying murmur filled my ears, and a strange, dumb confusedness descended on my mind. I'm afraid I cannot convey the particular sensations of time traveling. They are excessively unpleasant. There is a feeling exactly like that one has upon a switchback, of a helpless headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation, too, of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day like the flapping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping it every minute, and every minute marking a day. I supposed the laboratory had been destroyed and I had come into the open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed by too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light was excessively painful to the eye. Then, in the intermittent darknesses, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full and had a faint glimpse of the circling stars. Presently, as I went on, still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous grayness. The sky took on a woeful deepness of blue, a splendid luminous color like that of early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch in space, the moon a fainter fluctuating band, and I could see nothing of the stars, save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. The landscape was misty and vague. I was still on the hillside upon which this house now stands, and the shoulder rose above me, gray and dim. I saw trees growing and changing like puffs of vapor. Now brown, now green, they grew, spread, shivered, and passed away. I saw huge buildings rise up, faint and fair, and pass like dreams. The whole surface of the earth seemed changed, melting and flowing under my eyes. The little hands upon the dials that registered my speed raced round faster and faster, Presently I noted that the sun-belts swayed up and down, from solstice to solstice, in a minute or less, and that consequently my pace was over a year a minute, and minute by minute the white snow flashed across the world and vanished and was followed by the bright, brief green of spring. The unpleasant sensations of the start were less poignant now. They merged at last into a kind of hysterical exhilaration. I remarked indeed a clumsy swaying of the machine, for which I was unable to account, But my mind was too confused to attend to it, so with a kind of madness growing upon me I flung myself into futurity. At first I scarce thought of stopping, scarce thought of anything but these new sensations, but presently a fresh series of impressions grew up in my mind. A certain curiosity, and therewith a certain dread, until at last they took complete possession of me. What strange developments of humanity! What wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization, I thought— might not appear when I came to look nearly into the dim, elusive world that raced and fluctuated before my eyes. I saw great and splendid architecture rising about me, more massive than any buildings of our own time, and yet, as it seemed, built of glimmer and mist. I saw a richer green flow up the hillside and remain there, without any wintry intermission. Even through the veil of my confusion the earth seemed very fair, And so my mind came round to the business of stopping. The peculiar risk lay in the possibility of finding some substance in the space which I, or the machine, occupied. So long as I traveled at a high velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated, was slipping like a vapor through the interstices of intervening substances. But to come to a stop involved the jamming of myself, molecule by molecule, into whatever lay in my way meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacle that a profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion, would result, and blow myself and my apparatus out of all possible dimensions into the unknown. This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine, but then I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk. One of the risks a man has got to take. Now the risk was inevitable, I no longer saw it in the same cheerful light. The fact is that, insensibly, the absolute strangeness of everything, the sickly jarring and swaying of the machine, above all the feeling of prolonged falling, had absolutely upset my nerve. I told myself that I could never stop, and with a gust of petulance I resolved to stop forthwith. Like an impatient fool, I lugged over the lever, and incontinently the thing went reeling over and I was flung headlong through the air. There was the sound of a clap of thunder in my ears. I may have been stunned for a moment. A pitiless hail was hissing round me, and I was sitting on soft turf in front of the overset machine. Everything still seemed grey, but presently I remarked that the confusion in my ears was gone. I looked round me. I was on what seemed to be a little lawn in a garden, surrounded by rhododendron bushes, and I noticed that their mauve and purple blossoms were dropping in a shower under the beating of the hailstones. The rebounding dancing hail hung in a cloud over the machine and drove along the ground like smoke. In a moment, I was wet to the skin. Fine hospitality, said I to a man who has traveled innumerable years to see you. Presently, I thought what a fool I was to get wet. I stood up and looked round me. A colossal figure, carved apparently in some white stone, loomed indistinctly beyond the rhododendrons through the hazy downpour. But all else of the world was invisible. My sensations would be hard to describe. As the columns of hail grew thinner, I saw the white figure more distinctly. It was very large, for a silver birch tree touched its shoulder. It was of white marble, and shaped something like a winged sphinx. But the wings, instead of being carried vertically at the sides, were spread, so that it seemed to hover. The pedestal, it appeared to me, was of bronze, and was thick with verdigris. It chanced that the face was towards me. The sightless eyes seemed to watch me. There was a faint shadow of a smile on the lips. It was greatly weather-worn and that imparted an unpleasant suggestion of disease. I stood looking at it for a little space, half a minute, perhaps, or half an hour. It seemed to advance and to recede as the hail drove before it denser or thinner. At last I tore my eyes from it for a moment and saw that the hail curtain had worn threadbare and that the sky was lightning with the promise of the sun. I looked up again at the crouching white shape and the full temerity of my voyage came suddenly upon me. What might appear when that hazy curtain was altogether withdrawn? What might not have happened to men? What if cruelty had grown into a common passion? What if, in this interval, the race had lost its manliness and had developed into something inhuman, unsympathetic, and overwhelmingly powerful? I might seem some old-world savage animal, only the more dreadful and disgusting for our common likeness. "'a foul creature to be incontinently slain. "'Already I saw other vast shapes, "'huge buildings with intricate parapets and tall columns, "'with a wooded hillside dimly creeping in upon me "'through the lessening storm. "'I was seized with a panic fear. "'I turned frantically to the time machine "'and strove hard to readjust it. "'As I did so, the shafts of the sun "'smote through the thunderstorm. "'The gray downpour was swept aside "'and vanished like the trailing garments of a ghost.' Above me, in the intense blue of the summer sky, some faint brown shreds of cloud whirled into nothingness. The great buildings about me stood out clear and distinct, shining with the wet of the thunderstorm, and picked out in white by the unmelted hailstones piled along their courses. I felt naked in a strange world. I felt as perhaps a bird may feel, in the clear air, knowing the hawk wings above and will swoop. My fear grew to frenzy. I took a breathing space. Set my teeth and again grappled fiercely wrist and knee with the machine. It gave under my desperate onset and turned over. Struck my chin violently. One hand on the saddle, the other on the lever, I stood panting heavily in an attitude to mount again. But with this recovery of a prompt retreat, my courage recovered. I looked more curiously and less fearfully at this world of the remote future. In a circular opening, High up in the wall of the nearer house, I saw a group of figures clad in rich soft robes. They had seen me, and their faces were directed towards me. Then I heard voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx where the heads and shoulders of men running. One of these emerged in a pathway leading straight to the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet high, clad in a purple tunic, girdled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals or buskins, I could not clearly distinguish which, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees, and his head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as being a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably frail. His flushed face reminded me of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we used to hear so much. At the sight of him, I suddenly regained confidence. I took my hands from the machine. Hey Jules, how you feelin'? No, I just wanted to check in. Nothing much. Started going through those boxes for Minette, it's all books. No, just a lot of really dry law stuff. There was one box of classic lit. You want me to bring you something? I don't know, there's Wells, Homer, Austin, Bronte, Shakespeare. Literally any genre you could ask for. All right, I just figured you'd be bored. Yeah, I'm going to get rid of the law books, but I might keep these ones. I haven't even thought about most of these since high school, so might as well get something out of this whole inheritance thing. All right, love you too. The Rowan Tree Collection is created and produced by Rehobald Tice. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. Find us on most social media sites, like Facebook and Twitter, at The Rowentree Collection. To support us and get access to benefits like early ad-free episode releases and bonus content, follow us on Patreon at The Rowentree Collection. Thanks for listening.